Welcome to the Deal Reporter podcast. This is a special edition of the Deal Reporter podcast covering European bank capital. I'm John West, ECM editor at Deal Reporter. Joining me in the studio are Jones Day partners John O'Hearn and Lucas Moore. We'll be discussing the changing shape of European bank regulation, particularly how lenders will be wound up under the bail-in resolution regime and what this landscape means for the issuance environment for equity, loss-absorbing contingent capital and Tier 2 notes. 26th of October saw the European Central Bank publish the results of its comprehensive assessment of Eurozone bank balance sheets. 25 banks were found to have failed those checks, modelling an adverse scenario. Gentlemen, thank you for coming in. Looking at the list of the banks that that didn't quite uh, make the cut, it does seem a sort of list of the usual suspects. You've got the likes of Eurobank in there, Montepaschi, National Bank of Greece. John, if I could start with you. The European Banking Authority stress tests in 2012 were not necessarily... um, There was a degree of scepticism regarding them because relatively shortly afterwards, banks that seemed to have done all right were found not to have done. And then SNS Real, for one example, which we'll come back to, ended up being nationalised and required a bail-in. Is this uh, round of stress tests different? Is it is it better this time? I'm not sure so, so much so sure that it's um, better or worse. Um, I think it was certainly comprehensive as the uh, nomenclature goes. But it's a report that stretches to some 50-odd pages. I think broadly, uh, and the report admits it, one of the issues is that notwithstanding CRR and CRD4... These are the, this is the European Union's... European um, Union's uh, implementation of Basel III. Um, the uh, position throughout Europe is not perfectly harmonised, so that there are different transitional periods, for example, um, in respect of uh, the definition of capital and how that's all going to work. And so whilst I don't imagine that it's any less... Uh, robust than the 2012 assessment, um, you have to look at it as having been made in its time. And so future problems with any of the banks, even the ones you mentioned, or some of those that you mentioned, um, really will be a function of how those banks perform going forward, market conditions, or any adverse uh, material circumstances pertaining to individual banks, such as increasing impairments, Mm. uh, which uh, could have an adverse effect on their capital position. And of course, speaking of adverse scenarios, I mean, one of the adverse scenarios that that, that was put forward was a, a hike in um, sovereign yield, uh, sovereign yields. Uh, you know, one one commentator, uh, Francis Coppola, was saying that uh, the, yield, the yield spikes in the adverse scenario um, were not necessarily even as high as some of those we've seen during the eurozone crisis. Um, do you think that there is scope? Was the adverse scenario sort of was it strict enough? I think it probably, in my opinion, personally, it probably was. One of the things I would say about the financial crisis is that if you look back in time, the capital position in most of the major banks ran down probably in the first 30 days of the crisis. I often think that really the crisis was more a crisis of liquidity rather than a crisis of capital. And so in many ways, I think that the economists got hold of the debate very early on so that you had the De La Rosier report followed by the Turner Review um, and then all of the uh, feed-in to the Basel III framework, which focused mainly on capital and the definition of capital, rather than on liquidity. Now, there have been some improvements on the uh, liquidity uh, strictures and uh, framework for banks, but I don't know that it's necessarily the right place to focus entirely on capital in the way that Basel III does. 
No, and indeed, I mean, one of the one of the things that the comprehensive assessment seems to have done is it, it looks at the capital position and there was also an asset quality review. Mm-hmm. One of the things that doesn't seem to have been touched on, though, is the um, business model of, of the banks. And taking, for example, Monte Paschi, um, they had their business model um, because of the Monte bonds, the state-backed uh, bonds that they issued to shore up their capital. They had a business model actually checked by the European Commission. Now, I know the European Commission isn't isn't monitoring the the situation now. It's the European Central Bank. But should there be a, 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 an assessment of the business model alongside the asset quality? Well, I think ultimately there are other European provisions that are going to deal very effectively with business models, not least things like Vickers and Lycanin and so on. Uh, and we'll come on in more detail, I'm sure, later in this discussion to the BRRD. Mm. Um, and the whole issue of business modelling will be addressed in a very different way from what the assessment was setting out to do. The assessment was setting out to understand whether or not the capital structures within banks around Europe were of a sufficiently robust nature to um, uh, avoid the circumstances that we saw arising in 2008 at Sequentia. Uh, The uh, question of business modelling is largely going to be uh, directed by the need to separate proprietary trading, for example, or ring fence it from retail activity and so on. So I think that a lot more will happen in the business modeling going forward that will have much greater impact than the CRD and C- CRR in and of themselves. And while we're on acronyms, the BRRD you were referring to as the Bank Recovery and Resolution Directive. Apologies, yes. Yeah, no, it's fine. And we'll, we'll, we'll touch on that later with regard to the, the bail-in discussions. Um, I was just wondering... With regard to the single supervisory mechanism, this new this new framework uh, for bank supervision under the ECB, is that a very serious regulator? I mean, is that are they well staffed? What what's the division of labour between that body and the national regulators? I, I suspect that ultimately, and if you look at the early iterations of the relevant regulatory provisions relating to it, the um, the, the framework really is that at the top, policy will be directed very much by. Uh, the European bank. But ultimately, you need to rely on local regulators to do the day-to-day supervision of their banks. I mean, it seemed to me that some of the smaller banks, the the local regulators will take charge and the ECB will simply mark their homework. Well, quite. And um, indeed, within the mechanism, there is a distinction between the smaller banks and the bigger banks and so on uh, by risk-weighted asset size or otherwise, so that there will be a particular number of banks that will still largely be uh, supervised by their local regulators with, as you say, Uh, the homework being designated by the ECB. But ultimately, the ECB has a relatively small staff. It will, of course, shore up its resources, no doubt, in order to cope with the uh, requirements that are going to be made upon it under the single supervisory mechanism. But nevertheless, it will rely very heavily on local regulators to assist it with its function. Just going back a sec to the um, comprehensive assessment, I mean, one of the things that perhaps uh, surprised some people was just how well the German and French banks seemed to emerge from that process. I mean, there was some work done at the Volatility Lab at New York University suggesting that a stricter adverse scenario might uh, see French banks exposed to uh, 222 billion or a capital shortfall, sorry, of 222 billion. Uh, with German banks over a hundred billion, are, are those adverse scenarios simply too strict? Or I mean, it does seem that you know Deutsche Bank, for one, has many litigation risks, and uh, and and there are questions about its relationship with various sure. uh, local banks. Yeah, I, I think uh, one of the key difficulties in undertaking an assessment of this nature is that invariably 
it's going to be subject to the exigencies of particular banking models, which are very peculiar to particular banks. So Deutsche Bank, for example, will have an entirely different operating model to, let's say, BNP. Um, additionally, there are so many ways that you can cut and slice the data that it's a very, very imperfect science indeed, in my mind, to actually come up with a uniformly comprehensive assessment of bank capital and bank robustness in the system. And so that in terms of determining systemic risk, that will be a function of ultimately domestic geopolitical issues and uh, macroeconomic issues as much as it is of European-wide macroeconomic issues. And so ultimately, it's an imperfect science. And and to that sense, in that sense, I suppose that there's no way that we can sit here and say that this process has sort of kitchen sink the capital problems that may be there across European To my mind, not by a long shot. And I don't think any assessment of this nature ultimately can. One final point, um, with reg- in a sort of mirror image of what's happening in the European, uh, with the European, um, with the eurozone. Sorry, the Bank of England has taken on uh, bank supervision in in the UK, and it will be engaging in a similar exercise itself. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that will affect um, some of the some of the banks? I, I know that some of the UK banks were sort of part of the um, comprehensive assessment by virtue of their eurozone subsidiaries, but how is the Bank of England's um, approach going to differ? Well, the Bank of England's approach, I think, is going to be very much along the lines. Of the white paper that the Treasury issued before we had the Twin Peaks regulation implemented or regulatory bodies implemented. So that back as far as I think uh, 2011, uh, we had a very, very good indicator of the PRA's approach to bank supervision. And we've really in the UK, I think, probably um, for very good reason, gone back to having a prudential regulator, which really is focused on macro and micro prudential regulation as the Bank of England was prior to the implementation of the FISMA in 2001 and the creation of the FSA. So the Bank of England approach is largely, I think, going to be predicated on risk and measurement of risk and addressing risk in an interventionist way, as outlined in the Treasury's paper um, uh, back in uh, 2011, which I've mentioned. And so I think that the Bank of England is very much hands-on, actually, um, in terms of its familiarity with the prudential position of banks that are within its purview, not least because it has a very, very good grip on the data flow that's coming into it and a good way of analyzing that data. Yes, and I suppose the relationship with the Treasury, which is the ultimate owner of a significant stake still in RBS and and still 20% of Lloyd's, can't can't hurt that disclosure process. Quite. Thank you very much. Um, If we could move on, though, to the bail-in mechanism. I know we've already mentioned the um, Bank Recovery and Resolution Directive. As I say, the, um, Lucas, the, the ECB assumed full responsibility as single supervisor on 4th of November. Um, the BRRD covers the bail-in. This is supposedly to insulate taxpayers from uh, any problems that may occur with banks in the future in terms of bailouts that bondholders, um, senior and junior, would be take, would, would face haircuts or a wipeout before, before taxpayers were tapped. If we look at the SNS Real nationalisation in 2013, this is one where we did see bail-in um, under the Netherlands Intervention Act. Is that a fair model of um, the bail-in as it will be when it comes into full force in 1st of January 2016? Well, I think there's several parts to that. I think I think the first part is that the, the SNS bail-in was the first time that the subordinated bondholders were expropriated in addition to the equity. And obviously, as you'll appreciate, that's very much um, the, the kind of targeted scenario going forwards. Um, there was a there was apparently a question in the in the Dutch um, nationalisation expropriation as to whether the seniors would be affected at the, the same time. Ultimately, they weren't, um, and so the the ex- potential expropriation of seniors is a possibility going forward, but it's kind of uncharted territory so far. Um, 
I think in terms of the actual bail-in mechanism, um, there's still a good degree of flexibility around that. Um, the, 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 the Dutch model was very much a, a classic uh, government, government ministerial um, expropriation. Um, and I think as, we're, as we'll go on to discuss in a second, there's very much variations on that theme emerging as things have come forward in the last 18 months. Something of a something that was highlighted as a potentially sort of perverse um, uh, perverse consequence of the uh, regime um, under the Intervention Act and the various other Dutch um, regulatory um, um, framework uh, elements was this uh, feature of deposit insurance, and obviously that's that's something that does feature in the European the EU wide um, BRRD uh, system. It was designed to insulate taxpayers, but actually the, the, the risk of having to dip into this uh, deposit insurance scheme seemed to cause some jitters. Could, is there a negative feedback loop there? Um, well, I think the, I mean, the depositors have, have never to date been, in the context of the Dutch expropriation and the subsequent uh, bail-ins after that, have never been targeted as, as, a, uh, you know, as, as one of the outcomes of the bail-in mechanism. Um, and they obviously, they basically, by my understanding, fall outside the, the, the scope of the regime. So I'm not sure that actually you get any sort of feed forward loop from that. They're always regarded as a as a protected class of creditor. But is it not more the fear of having to put some money aside for this insurance scheme that's the that's the issue? Um, potentially, but ultimately, uh, e- notwithstanding a bail in, I mean, in in these rescue situations, um, and certainly in the SNS case, they're not exclusively conducted by way of a bail in. It's always a combined bail out bail in, and so there's always a need for injection. Uh, of of capital, nonetheless. Hmm. So it's it's not as if the, uh, I don't think it's as if you stand between the option of well, I face the risk of um, having to having to meet some sort of depositor ins- insurance, or uh, I can conduct a bail in. Uh, it's never quite that simple. One of the other problems, though, I, and we perhaps saw this a little bit with Banco Espirito Santo, the Portuguese hmm. bank, in the, in the, in the summer, which which was. Um, which in which there was a resolution and um, and an element of bail in, although not for junior bondholders, only for senior bondholders. Um, the reason why senior bondholders seem to have been insulated there was because there was a risk of domino effect that they were worried that this would actually create problems for other banks and in the country and the region. Correct. Is is is, is does the bail in mechanism suffer from this inherent problem of weakening other banks around it? Well, I think it's a question of degree. I mean, I think you're right in the sense that the bail-in mechanism does potentially have within its within its scope um, the ability to expropriate um, senior bondholders as well. As we said, it's it's not been done to date, and I think that is because of the 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 market fears that would um, follow from that potentially. Um, so, I, I, it's a question of degree. I think if the if the situation arose, presumably the legislation is there, the power is there, so that 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 measure could be undertaken if absolutely necessary. But people uh, and and governments aren't going to want to cause uh, such a high degree of distortion within the markets and and potential issues that surround that in terms of investor confidence going forwards. And with both SNS and now uh, Banco Espirito Santo, I mean, we've seen in in the the past week that uh, Hedge Fund Third Point and the Brazilian bank uh, BTG Pactual have have filed a lawsuit in in Portugal. Mm. What is the, you know, if if you find yourself an expropriated bondholder, um, what legal pathways are there now and under the BRRD as, as it comes into full force? 
Well, I think um, I think it depends is the answer to that. The, the first point to make is that the the BES uh, bail-in really is is more of a de facto bail-in in by way of its consequence than an actual technical bail-in. Um, obviously, the it, what was conducted there was a, a regulatory separation of the bank um, into the good and bad banks and a, a division of the recourse that the senior creditors have to the good the assets of the good bank and the the junior creditors and equity to the assets of the bad bank. So that was more of a regulatory effect, but the the consequence of it was nonetheless equivalent to a classic style bail-in. Um, the, so the consequence of that in terms of one's ability to challenge what has happened, obviously, it's going to be dictated by the, the mechanism that's been used. Um, but the, 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 the classic component of any such challenge is the kind of inevitable tension between really the, the concept of bail-in, which is to reduce the financial institution's um, liabilities at a point in time before it actually goes technically insolvent. But at the same time, obviously, the investors concerned have their uh, fundamental rights as provided often by constitutions and also by, for example, the, the European Convention on Human Rights. Um, so there's a, there's a tension between those two points. And that gives the investors the ability often um, in the context of a of a classic bail-in, for example, the SNS scenario, there will be a statutory ability to challenge the expropriation, um, which would follow from the Intervention Act in that case. In the case of a regulatory bail-in, it's much more likely that there will be more of a of a public law challenge to the um, to the actions, for example, of the central bank. But but don't these challenges in and of themselves make the bail-in process more unstable than a simple sweeping government intervention? Um, I, I'm not sure that's the case because I think either way, you, 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 there is the possibility of a challenge. If you have government intervention and expropriation, often there is there will be the ability there to challenge that um, intervention nonetheless. And if you have a regulatory intervention, you're still likely to have the avenue for challenge. And the arguments that arise in both contexts, albeit they may be different procedures that surround them, are likely to be the same core arguments, which are the crux of, of the investors' constitutional and other fundamental rights that are provided to them. So, and you, I think, think that, so you think the clarity is there? Um, I'm not saying there's absolute clarity, because obviously when, when um, these challenges uh, happen, they, they may give rise to a degree of uncertainty. But what I'm saying is I don't think by going down one route or the other in terms of how you affect the bail-in will actually uh, reduce or increase the prospect of challenge either way. I think it'll still be there. With regard to another example, I mean, obviously we've seen, and I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, uh, Hippo Alpe Adria Bank uh, International in, in Austria. Is that something of an exception there? Because it seems like the, the bail-in was structured in a very particular way to insulate a, 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 an Austrian province. Um, I, think it, I think it's exceptional in that sense. I think within the, um, within the broad scheme of bail-in, it is structured by way of a classic expropriation. So it has, it kind of harks back to the mechanisms that we've seen before. So it's not a one-off in that sense. Um, I think it's particularly targeted nature, though, is quite interesting and is something of a of a potential kind of anomaly going forwards. But I think it is that targeted nature that potentially out of all of the recent um, bail-in legislation we've seen renders it potentially the most subject to, to legal challenge because arguably of its uh, discriminatory and, and potentially disproportionate nature. So I think it, you know, it is something out there an anomaly, but it's still the classic constitute the Austrian constitutional and the uh, other fundamental rights that surround it that will be used to challenge it going forwards. And I, I think the other the other point to drop into the mix also is that in any one of these situations, obviously there's the prospect of um, action under bilateral investment treaties as well. 
Um, and that is something that, it, particularly in the case of HAA, for example, Austria is, is party and signatory to a number of those forms of investor protection. Do, do, do you think, I mean, just ultimately, does this, are, are we going to get more of a, are the bonds, go, are we going to get more of a read through in bond prices, do you think, as to those banks that are in trouble? Um, because there is a greater weight attached to the bonds being bailed in. Do you think we're going to see more vigorous price signals? Are we going to get more of a lead time to see that a bank is in trouble? I'm not sure we're necessarily going to get more of a lead time. I think that depends on the the mechanism of bail-in and the way in which uh, any given bail-in or situation is approached. I mean, the, I think, I mean, the, reason, I think it, the reason I ask is is, is when, when we look back at the EBA stress tests in 2012, hmm. you know, at, at the time, um, SNS, for example, was said to have a tier one capital ratio of 13%, roughly in line with ING. And yet, you know, a year later, there they were being nationalised. I'm just trying to see if there's something investors can, can they read the runes in a bit more now um, as to which banks are in trouble? Or is it a bank will collapse from one day to the next, was ever thus? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure they'll, they'll necessarily be, and I don't know what John's view on this. They'll necessarily be a, a bank by bank kind of specific indication. But I think um, you know what, one thing that's obviously becoming apparent is that the the risk as an investor of having one's investment um, expropriated or bailed in is uh, is <coughs> substantially greater now than anyone would have thought a number of years ago, and that is obviously going to have consequential pricing effects. John, yeah, so- from my point of view, I think that. Um, you know, investors would be paying a lot closer attention to quarterly reports and quarterly reporting than they might have felt they had to do in the past. So to the extent that you're seeing anything in the underlying um, analysis of bank issuers, then, you know, you may see some lead in time into pricing. You may see some movements in pricing. But uh, that just remains to be seen, like Lucas was saying. Right now, we live in an environment where there are very varying, as you've seen from the examples you've already cited, attitudes to bail-in and mechanisms by which bail-in might be achieved. Once the BRRD comes in, one would expect that there will be a more harmonious regime throughout the European Union, which I think then alongside other provisions such as capital requirements regulatory reporting and other reporting uh, will generate data that will be looked at much more closely than I imagine would have been the case in the past. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned having a dig through uh, quarterly reports because having done just that, mm-hmm. um, one of the things I came across um, was obviously that the uh, many of the uh, key Greek banks, Eurobank, National Bank of Greece, um, Piraeus, uh, to name but three, have some €3 billion Euros of um, deferred tax assets sat on their balance sheet. Now, Greece and Portugal and Italy and Spain, I believe, uh, they've all instituted um, legal cha- uh, changes to the law that can reclassify these deferred tax assets as deferred tax credits mm-hmm. um, in order to satisfy um, uh, the ECB. Um that process has already been criticised somewhat by the EBA and not uh, the European Banking Authority in not decoupling bank ca- bank balance sheets from sovereigns. Um, where do you stand on that? My position on that is that there's nothing more reliable one would expect than sovereign debt. And so where you reclassify... Surely it depends where... <laughs> well, depending where it is, and Greece is perhaps not the best example. But nevertheless, um, in an ordinary environment, I don't really have a difficulty with... I don't necessarily regard the transition of DTAs into deferred tax credits as a coupling of the sovereign with the bank, necessarily. We're living in an environment where banks are under enormous pressure to either recapitalize or substantially shore up their capital resources, whilst at the same time living in an environment where 
um, capital in banks is not as attractive as it once was, not least because of mechanisms like bail-in. So that the pricing of bank capital has become a much more expensive process and uh, proposition than it had been heretofore. So to my mind, it makes perfect sense to me in um, uh, an environment such as we live in to facilitate some flexibility in the manner in which you might look at deferred tax assets. Well, it's, it, interestingly, is that, is that um, increased cost of capital that I think is, is where we want to move on to? So. Um, one of the risks, as far as I could tell from, from the bail-in regime under BRRD, could be a hike in risk premiums that bondholders expect uh, to take on uh, debt instruments, from junior debt all the way up to the additional tier one, which sits as a buffer that, uh, with a trigger um, if the core, if core capital falls below a certain... Exactly, the yep. uh, point of non-viability. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think banks will find their financing costs on the rise through 2015? Oh, there's no question but that they will. And they, they've actually been finding this already, not least in the tier two world, because on implementation of the capital requirements regulation, we're already in the grandfathering period, whereby over a 10-step process, we're seeing non-qualifying tier two capital instruments uh, being written off at 10% per annum up through 2019 or thereabouts. And so um, right from the get-go in the UK, at least, even if you look at the mutual sector, where the West Bromwich was one of the first to issue um, PPDS, which is a profit participating deferred share, and bearing in mind mutuals can't go to the capital market in the same way as everybody else. What happened in that case was that the bondholders were basically put in a room and persuaded to accept an instrument different than the bond that they had bought originally. So they were, they were given a, a bottle of whiskey and a revolver and told... Uh... It's one or the other. And <laughs> so, um, exactly right. And so um, there's clearly a nexus between the cost of capital and the premium the capital is going to attract um, and the risk and additional risk in the new world that investors are taking on. And so I expect that we will continue to see capital instruments issued at a higher and higher premium, um, at least in the short term. Um, and banks really are between something of a rock and a hard place because they have no choice but to raise the capital. I mean, this is what I wanted to ask, really. I mean, obviously, we saw in in the summer, Spain's Banco Popular uh, wanted to get an additional tier one contingent um, convertible cocoa yeah. bond out there. They they wanted it to come with a seven percent handle, and they could re- investors were insisting on an eight percent handle. Mm-hmm. If this buffer capital. Um, is which is as it, as it is designed to absorbs losses the way regulators mm-hmm. want it to. Won't banks like Popular and perhaps Eurobank and Montepaschi? Won't they find this just ruinous to issue? Well, I think they'll find it very challenging. I mean, one of the alternatives is to go and raise common equity instead. But common equity is not. But has this perversely made issuing common equity preferable to issuing these? But absolutely, it has. The trouble is whether a common equity issuance has become more attractive or not. Right. And so, um, where you're looking at an instrument which has a relatively decent premium, be it seven or eight percent in today's world, um, that's an instrument that might be attractive, notwithstanding the risk and depending on where your triggers are than the common equity. Um, and you know there are some investors who are not going to be interested in straight equity and who would prefer exposure to debt. So I think that uh, it, from the bank's point of view, yes, I think they would probably much prefer to be issuing common equity, at least in terms of the cost of capital. Uh, but on the other that hand... That is strange, isn't it? It's, well, it's sort of counterintuitive in one way, isn't it? Yeah. But, um, but nevertheless, uh, getting capital uh, common equity issuances away um, might not be as easy as getting... Um, a, an additional tier one or a tier two instrument away. And you think that um, AT1s, these these cocoa bonds, are we going to see more of them at the point of non-viability trigger, five and an eighth? Or, or... 
I, I think we're going to see them. I think my issue, a lot of the UK banks have come have come with high triggers. They've come with high triggers. I think you know the low trigger, like five percent, it's probably um, in one sense very attractive because you would expect that be highly unlikely unless in extremely stressed conditions a bank would reach a five percent ratio. Um, on the other hand, what's I think somewhat unattractive about cocos intrinsically is that where you're buying an instrument which can convert. Then, to the extent that it Either, is convertible, it's a downward spiral. Right, and there are three. There are three types of. I mean, it can convert to equity. Yep. It can be written down, or it can be a yo-yo coco where it writes exactly. down and then gets written gets up. Written, at, written up again at some yeah. future point. Yeah. And you know, I think what we are going to see as well is probably some innovation to the extent that you can within the fairly restricted flexibility of the CRR on the kinds of instruments that we're going to see. You might remember about two years ago, I think Barclays issued an instrument whereby at the point of non-viability or at least at the trigger, what happens is you don't get disenfranchised, but rather, or at least you don't get written down. What happens is you get disenfranchised by your instrument moving to the Barclays Hold Co., which was a very interesting um, approach such that at the trigger point, Holdco becomes the possessor of the debt. And then there are obviously lots of things that can be done intra-group about how that debt is going to be dealt with and what the tax consequences of it might be. But I thought that was an example of an instrument that was quite innovative in terms of its structure, driven by um, the Basel III framework and the uh, the requirements around capital that we're seeing now. And well, g- given given that framework, given CRD4, given CRR framework, um, it seems to me this is one of the very rare occasions uh, where investors who are looking for yield have the whip hand because the, the they've got a, a series of issuers in banks that are forced to raise this, this capital. Are we going to see some pretty decent yields for investors? I would expect so. I mean, I think that, you know, the real pressure and race, um, at least in this transitional grandfathering period on the CRR, puts all the pressure on the banks to raise capital. So it's really a buyer's market. So a buyer's market. You heard it here first. I'm afraid that's all we have time for. But I'd like to say thank you to John and Lucas. Thank you, John. John. And thank you to you for listening. Goodbye.